नमस्ते जय हिंद वेलकम टू अनदर एडिशन ऑफ द एन आई पॉडकास्ट विथ स्मिता प्रकाश थैंक यू फॉर लाइकिंग एंड सब्सक्राइबिंग एंड फॉर शेयरिंग इट विद दोज हु यू थिंक विल बेनिफिट फ्रॉम दीज कॉन्वर्सेशंस माई गेस्ट टुडे इज अतुल कश्यप प्रेजिडेंट ऑफ द यू एस इंडिया बिजनेस काउंसिल मिस्टर कश्यप हैज बीन अ फॉर्मर अमेरिकन डिप्लोमैट हु सर्वड एज शाज डेफेयर इन न्यू डेली एंड हैज बीन द यू एस ऑनवॉय टू श्रीलंका एंड मॉलडीव्स we are continuing with our focus on foreign policy despite the attention these days on domestic politics thank you mr kashyap for being part of the podcast uh let's begin the conversation with uh, telling our viewers what the us india business council is all about what does it do how does it promote trade between your country and mine Well, Smitha, thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor and a privilege, and it's great to see you. Thank you. So, USIBC, the U.S. India Business Council, was founded in 1975 after um, Secretary Henry Kissinger came to India and realized that there was no uh, organization. designed to propagate and expand US India business and investment ties. So he came back to the states and he talked to the US Chamber of Commerce and said, "Hey, we've got to set something up." So, uh both governments then agreed that the US IBC would be housed in the US Chamber of Commerce and it would exist to advance the cause of trade and investment between the US and India for shared prosperity. So I'm very pleased to report to you that we're almost 50 years old. We'll have our big bash in uh, 2025 to celebrate 50 years of service. And we work very closely with both governments and with companies from both countries to try to expand the prosperity and happiness of the Indian and American people. We have about 200 member companies. Uh 2/3 are American, 1/3 are Indian. We have all of the top leading uh Indian companies in our membership and the purpose of the organization is to uh work collaboratively with both governments and with stakeholders across both countries to come up with policies that enhance the prosperity of both peoples mm-hmm. so this can be in many different areas it's in financial services it's in digital economy energy legal and professional services aerospace and defense and so much else e-commerce supply chain manufacturing you know India is a a boom country right now. You have an economy that is the envy of the entire world. And so it's a great moment to work on US India trade ties. You've been watching India, you've been a practitioner of foreign policy. I'm going to get to the economy bit you know later, but first my viewers would obviously want to know who is Mr. Atul Kashyap? Who is your name of course there'll be a lot of curiosity about that um indian origin indian parents um working in the foreign service uh career diplomat for some time so tell us a little bit about uh your origins to in india well um i was born in nigeria and i spent the first 12 years of my life in nigeria lesotho afghanistan austria and zambia My dad was a uh, UN international civil servant. He was a senior development officer of the UN. And my mother had been with the US Foreign Service. They met in London in 1960 on her second assignment. Her first assignment was in India, and there's a long story that I could tell you about that. Second assignment was in London where they met. He was pursuing a doctorate. When he got his PhD, your father's the Punjabi. Yes. Yes, he's <laughs> And your mother is My father was a uh, partition refugee. Okay. He fled to Delhi with his family, my grandfather and others uh in 1947. From where? From uh, a little village outside of Multan uh-huh. called Muzaffargarh. Uh-huh. 
Okay. So they were partition refugees, and that's a whole other story. And by the way, I commend to you the Partition Museum uh, at uh, Ambedkar University at Kashmiri Gate. It's a very moving place, and I think people should go and see it. I was very privileged to uh, donate on behalf of my family a lock that came with my grandparents from the old country. And uh, Mother India housed my family. They took care of my family. They gave my father admittance to the Delhi School of Economics, even as a refugee. So Mother wow. India has done amazing things for my family. I'll never so your forget father's it. father's from Delhi School of Economics. Yeah, he graduated amazing. Delhi School of Economics. He joined the uh, Punjab Civil Service and worked in Shimla for a few years. Then he went to England. He finished his PhD in Europe. He joined the United Nations, married my mom along the way. And so I have two brothers born in uh, Europe. Uh, I've got a brother born in Afghanistan. I was born in Nigeria. We lived all around the world for the first 15 years of my life. <laughs> And then I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, my dad retired. Um, I went to middle school, high school, college, and grad school in Charlottesville, Virginia. And then as soon as I got done with that, I joined the U.S. Foreign Service. And why? Why, why the U.S.? Because your mom was... You I know, mean, you're an establishment kid. Right? You know, weirdly, uh, when I was young and in college, I wanted to go to Wall Street. And I wanted to do finance. And uh, I did a couple of internships up on Wall Street, and... Uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, said, I don't like you when you come back from New York. You're a different kind of person. I had all these uh, friends of mine that were in the financial industry. So she said, I don't think that's going to work for us if you stick with it. And then I was in the middle of a course on international law. And the professor um, asked me, he said, you're going to be a lawyer, right? I said, no, I really don't have an interest in being a lawyer. He said, well, you're getting great grades in this class. You understand the case law really well. You understand all the concepts of diplomacy. You should be a foreign service officer. Mm -hmm. I had never thought of it up to that moment. So he went to the back of the hall, tore a, a, a postcard off of a poster, and said, fill this in, take the foreign service exam. You're a natural. So I filled in the postcard. And, you know, getting into the foreign service takes two years minimum. You've got to uh, take a written exam. If you pass that exam and are in the top echelon of passing that exam, then you have to go for an oral interview that lasts an entire day. If you pass that and are one of the people selected, they usually take about 12 for each day of these oral uh, all-day sort of interventions. If you're one of the people selected, they only pick one usually out of the 12. Then you go for the full uh, security and medical clearance, suitability clearance. And if you get through all of that, then you go on a list and then you get hired. Is so it was a two-year like, process. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Is this something like the Indian UPSC? You've heard of the UPSC. Sure, yeah, is it's it something, something like that. Like that? Yeah. Okay. So it, the, the Foreign Service exam is the main recruitment pathway for getting into the U.S. Foreign Service. You, anybody can take it. If you're an American citizen, you have to be between 20 and 59 years of age, and you can take it. So it is very competitive. It's highly selective. And this professor was the guy who told me, take this exam. So I did, and I told my mother, and she said, you know I was in the U.S. Mm. Foreign Service. And that's when I recalled that the circle was completing. So you have to be, uh, you were obviously a U.S. citizen, even yep. though, uh, you know, no, your dad was also a U.S. citizen by then, right? So that's another interesting story. My mother uh, is part of the family that founded the Crown Colony of Maryland. Mm -hmm. So on my mother's side, we go back to 1632. On my father's side, he was a first-generation immigrant, immigrant into the United yeah. States. So he became an American citizen, but for my whole childhood, he remained a very proud Indian citizen. Oh, very really? proud. 
But yeah. uh, joining the foreign service is is that uh, a hindrance if your no one issue. parent is uh, no. no issue? It depends. No issue. You know, like we have some countries that are more sensitive. Uh, mm. I don't think India is one no. of them. It's yeah. a friend. But for countries that are more sensitive, then there may be some service restrictions, like you cannot serve in that country because of your ancestry. But generally, the U.S. Foreign Service, uh, and increasingly, is made up of people from all over the mm. United States, and those people come from all over the world. So, When you were envoy uh, to Maldives and Sri Lanka, there was Richard Verma, who was uh, yep. uh, who was the envoy in New Delhi. Correct. That was kind of a coincidence, right? Both yeah. of you of Indian parentage yep. uh, and uh, serving as U.S. envoys here in the great. Indian subcontinent. I'm actually hosting him at five o'clock oh, okay. for a session. Huh. Uh, he's in town, so it's mm. going to be great to see him again. But yes, it was great. And it's very meaningful to me. You know, um, when, when my dad retired and we moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, there was only one other Indian family there. Mm. And now, of course, in Charlottesville, there are hundreds of Indian families. And back when I joined the Foreign Service, I was only aware of two or three other foreign service officers who were Indian American. Now there must be hundreds. Mm. And the diversity of the foreign service now is really remarkable compared to back then in 1994. So yeah, I kind of blundered into my foreign service career <laughs> because of taking an international law class. Tell me about uh, your childhood when your mom was posted here at the U.S. Embassy. How old were you then? And uh, oh. what was your exposure to India then? Well, when my mother was posted here, I was uh, negative 20 years old. I uh, mm. hadn't been born yet. She came oh, here okay. in 1958. My goodness. And she was at the first American embassy, which I believe was at a place called Patiala Barracks. Okay. And then she and, and a coterie of officers shifted into the new American chancery uh, in Chinakyapuri. And she was in one of the first people to occupy the, uh, uh, lodgings in the staff quarters that are I think on the other side of Nyaya Marg from the Chancery. So I brought my mom back uh, in uh, 2006, maybe. When so I was, was she married at all to your dad? No, no, time? she was a no? single young single. American woman posted to India. Um, and uh, she traveled all around. She went up to Srinagar on an Indian Airlines DC-3 through wow. the mountains. Uh, she went to Karachi. She went to Colombo. She went to... Um, all around India. So she did Pura Bharat Darshan okay. as a very young first tour officer in the U.S. Foreign Service, 1958 to 1960. Amazing. What yeah. an interesting time to be in India at that time. She had a great time. Yeah. So, And after that, she came to India only when you were here as Shaj Defe. So you have to understand something about my white American mother. <laughs> she is who has imparted in me Hindu spirituality. She's the person who has imparted in me an abiding love of India. She is the person who taught us the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. She taught us all about the uh, Puranas and the Upanishads. She imparted all of this when we were children. Her love of India starts from the get-go in her life because her father, my American grandfather, was born in India in 1907. Your nana? Yeah. My mother's, mother's father. father was born in Bangalore in 1907. Goodness. And so when my mother, growing up in rural North Carolina, was a little girl, she was raised on stories told by her grandmother about living in India. Her grandmother and grandfather lived in India as American expatriates. Uh, my great-grandfather got here in 1901, and he married my great-grandmother in 1906 
back in the States, brought her to India. They had uh, my granddad here in 1907, and then they left in 1909. Oh, my goodness. So my mother grew up on all these fantastic stories about India. Um, in my grandmother's house, uh, in my childhood memories in Newport News, Virginia, you would walk into a house that felt like uh, you know, like a storehouse of Indian treasure. There were all these Indian textiles and Indian artwork and Indian um, uh, brass metalware. You know, the kinds of things you see on Janpath now. Correct. That house was full of it in Newport News, Virginia mm -hmm. in the 1970s. So the connection to India in my mother's family is as strong as it is in my father's family. How did, uh, when and where did she meet your dad? London, 1960. They okay. got married in London on her second foreign service assignment. She um, went to the foreign service. She got recruited. Uh, she went through all the training and everything. And then she went to the lady uh, who uh, assigns people. And, and the lady said, where do you want to go? And she said, India. Hmm. And the lady said, all right, what's your name? Calvert. Where are you from? Oxford, North Carolina. And she paused. My mother tells her the story. The lady paused and said, your name is Calvert. You're from Oxford, North Carolina. Is your father Craig Calvert? And my mom said, yes. She said, my goodness, you can go to India. He was the most handsome boy at uh, <laughs> Oxford High School. That okay. woman posted her straight to India, New Delhi. Uh -huh. She came back two years later, asked her again, where do you want to go? My mother said, London. She said, straight off, off you go. So she met my dad in London. Mm -hmm. And then they joined the UN in 1965. Okay. And they spent 25, 30 years traveling all around the world. So when you became charge d'affaires and you were in New Delhi, you brought your mother to no, India? No, I, I actually, no, she was, she's a little old and infirm now. She's mm -hmm. in her late 80s. And this was a very short tenure. I was asked to do some mm -hmm. very specific things. So I actually, mom actually visited here when Karen and I were posted here 2005 to 2008. The earlier posting. On the earlier posting. And I took her into the embassy and I... I, I said, Mom, show me where your office was. And we walked straight up the front steps. She said, turn left. We went straight up the steps to the ambassador's office. She walked in the ambassador's office and she said, and she pointed at my, my colleague John's office, which is right next to the ambassador's and said, that's it. That's where I used to work. And I said, good Lord, that's like you shared a wall with the U.S. ambassador. And she had a particular role at the time that required that proximity. But I asked her, I said, well, how much has the chancery changed? She said, the only thing is back in 1958, there was no wall, no mm -hmm. security wall. You just walked over a hedge and in you went. So mm -hmm. she loved it coming back. Yeah, I can imagine. So um, you just mentioned that there was some specific uh, work that was assigned to you when you came here as charge d'affaires. Tell us about that because... Uh, it was a very short tenure that you had. And then when you left, there was a lot of controversy about that, that it's possibly because of your meeting with the RSS that you were told to go back immediately. So tell us a little bit about that period of your life. Complete manufactured buckwas by, uh, by um, uh, interested parties. I had a great tenure here in that uh, period. I, you know, I had finished a very tough job uh, helping um, a colleague, a guy named David Stilwell, run the East Asia and Pacific Bureau. And we didn't plan on it and certainly didn't anticipate it, but we ended up leading 23,000 people across, uh, no, it's 14,000 people across 23 embassies. That's it. Uh, during the pandemic. Hmm. And it was an extremely stressful time. You know, we were having these 
9 p.m. phone calls every week with all of our ambassadors in the field to help them and their embassies manage these early days of the pandemic. And the pandemic started in the East Asia sphere of, you know, where we were working. And I came off of that and um, I was shifting gears. You know, in the Foreign Service, you put your bids in and then you wait to see where you're going. And I was shifting gears and I was called and asked to go straight to India. I said, why? And they said, we need you to go straight to India right away. And I said, okay, but tell me what I'm supposed to do. And uh, they said, look, the embassy had a really tough time in the pandemic. You know, they lost people. Um, they helped them get back on their feet. I said, great, happy to do it. So I packed my two suitcases and, um, and then I was told to come in and see the secretary. So I went in and saw him. And, um, you know, this was at the beginning of the Biden administration. Secretary Blinken had just come into his uh, position and I had helped him organize the first quad ministerial mm -hmm. uh, between the four foreign ministers. It was a virtual thing in, I think, within 10 days of his coming into office. And then I had some Burma stuff that I had to do because there was that terrible coup in Burma. And um, mm. but then by, by the time that we talked, it was, I think, June. And he said, I want to get out to India right away. Please help get that embassy to where it can host a visit and report back. So I came out here. I had wonderful meetings. Uh, it was a delight to see all of my old uh, embassy colleagues. Um, it was a wonderful experience uh, interacting with the Indian government and the Indian foreign ministry. And I think within, I don't know, like three, four weeks of my getting here, we hosted Secretary Blinken hmm. for his first visit to India. And it had a very positive tone. It had a very constructive tone. I think thereafter, I hosted two or three other big visits. And then uh, I had stuff back home. My wife had a surgery and I had, I was living out of two suitcases. So I said, can I, you know, when can I come home? And that then uh, in mid-August, something terrible happened, which was the, uh, the evacuation from Afghanistan. Hmm. And I ended up putting about two or three solid weeks of work into that. A lot of late nights, a lot of stress. And then I said, look, I got to come home. I've got you know, stuff with the kids, stuff with my wife. I left on no notice. So they said, sure, come on home. So one of the last things that I had programmed before I left was a meeting with the RSS. And I checked with my staff and they said, oh yeah, all the previous ambassadors meet with the RSS. And as part of being a diplomat, you know, one of the bulwarks of being a diplomat is you meet every element of society and you hear different things about what people have to say in order to understand a country better, in order to help your nation understand a country better and to understand the relationship. So this was a routine meeting and I met them and uh, then I went home because I had to go home. I had stuff to do. And this is when I think there was sort of a manufactured kind of uh, outrage that came. And as a serving officer, it wasn't my job to speak up or tamp it down. You know, foreign service officers are ex incredibly disciplined about public messaging, right? So I let the controversy rage because it's not my job to tamp it down. But the notion that that was the triggering sort of impact was not at all true because I had scheduled to be there for about when – I, when I had <laughs> – you should understand my bureaucracy to understand why, why this is funny. But when I was told to go out there, I said, absolutely, I'll go. But I want a firm return ticket. Mm. And I had a firm return ticket. And the meeting with the RSS was just the day before the firm return ticket. So I came out here with an exact date of my ticket home, which is why all of this controversy that was manufactured is, as I said, buckwas. 
and also that you quit the foreign service soon after so there was this you know at least in india um because we just have career diplomats in the us there are the political appointees as well as career diplomats so explain about how that is different the indian foreign service and the sure. the happy to do it yeah so if you could tell me that so we do have both kinds and i think you have on some occasions had political appointees as yes. well but we have about 30% of our ambassadors are political appointees mm. um close to the president close to the political party in yeah. power and about 70% of our ambassadors are are career foreign mm. service uh i will uh not lie the politicals go to better places than the career people uh and that's fine that's that's how our system works but um uh as a career mm. diplomat i spent 28 years in the us foreign service i joined the us foreign service when i was 22 years old and mm. uh, i got to a point um where i just realized that if i didn't leave i would only have done this you know i went from basically grad school i finished my thesis turned it in in december where was this university of virginia charlottesville okay. i turned in my master's thesis in december of 93 in january of 94 i i got my state department badge mm. and so i was january of 94 i must have been like 23 22 i can't remember and that's all i had ever done and you know i'd served overseas i'd been an american ambassador um you know there are personal philosophical professional financial reasons why it had come time for me you know my wife is a foreign service officer she is serving with distinction uh she has 30,000 people she worries about every day uh my mother was a foreign service officer so i came home from delhi um and i had been through the pandemic and then i had been through that really traumatic evacuation from kabul and i thought about it and i just wondered like i could keep doing this um mm -hmm. in our system it's called an up or out promotion system so um i had actually just received a letter saying whatever you do stick around for another year cuz you're about to get your third star i got a letter from the system saying do not leave uh i won't name the name but a, a retired now retired career ambassador wrote me and said we're telling you one more year you're getting your third star so don't stick around i thought about it and i was just feeling like tired you know like the pandemic was draining i can't tell you how much work went into those two years and then the delhi experience was lovely in one sense but also draining and i was just sitting on a couch waiting for my next assignment and lo and behold Nisha Biswal calls mm. and she says, "Hey Atul, what are you doing?" I said, "Nothing, just waiting for my next assignment." You worked with her at the US State Department. I worked State with Department. her in the State Department uh like 2013, 2014. Yeah. 15, 16 as well. And I said, "Nothing." And she said, "Great. Why don't you come and take my job?" <laughs> I said, "What are you kidding? Mm. Uh yours is a fantastic job." She said, "Yeah, but you're the right guy for it and I think you should come and take my job." So I went to my wife and my mother and I asked them what they thought and they said yeah mm. 28 years is enough you know mm. like you've given your time you've done your service and so i thought about it some more i think i i gave it about 2 to 3 months of just thinking about it you know and then there's this process where you've got to turn in your papers you've got to go sign in blood that you intend <laughs> to leave you got to go like check in with all these bosses and tell them yeah 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 i'm leaving and then once you've done all of that you can actually leave mm. and i I um I ended up retiring on the 5th of January of 
2022. And on the same day, I started work at the U.S. Chamber. Oh, okay. Just wanted to try something new, meet new people, do new things. But there's another critical element. This particular job, more than almost any other job out there, is a fantastic opportunity to serve the cause of U.S.-India relations. Mm -hmm. It is a job from which you can help paint positive visions about the United States and India together. It is a, a position from which you can encourage companies and other stakeholders, governments as well, towards certain paths of effort and activity. It's a, a position from which you can help inspire people. And because it's U.S.-India, it's profoundly meaningful to me. Yeah. So when that opportunity came along and I thought about all the other things I could do, I said, this is it. This is the job made for me. I've put 20 years of my life into building the U.S.-India relationship. This job will help me do even more in that regard. So in U.S. business relation, U.S.-India business relationship, a term used is global strategic partnership. Uh, demystify this term for me. It, it's very simple. Um, if you think about... So first of all, I would say that we don't have to go through all the history of all the tough years between the U.S. and India. I was born in 1971. That was probably the worst year yeah, the of U.S.-India relations. And, you know, we came through the Cold War and then we had the Pokhran tests and then, you know, there was the nuclear deal. I worked on the nuclear deal with a lot of yeah, other Yeah, I'm going people. to ask you about that, okay. how that materialized. <laughs> we have overcome hmm. a lot of strategic misapprehensions about one another. Mm. We have come to an echelon of confidence and trust that is really remarkable. We are the two largest democracies on earth. Our strategic, economic, and technological convergence is getting faster and faster. And it's because of the realities in the world today. It is because of the nature of our two economies. It is because of how we do business with each other and with countries around the world. It is also because of our values. We are pluralistic, free people. We think freely. We speak freely. We find that to be a very great trait in one another that we respect and admire. And we feel, I think, increasingly that we can do things together for the benefit of each other and for, frankly, all of the free people of the world. So look at our quad partnership. Look at now our, our rather rapidly increasing partnership in trying to uphold stability in the Middle East. Look at um, the, um, the infrastructure partnership with UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel and USA and India and Greece. That's a very interesting new dimension yeah. of the U.S. engagement with India and India's engagement with the world. I, I am seeing more and more interactivity between the U.S. and India in Africa, for instance, or in the Indian Ocean region. There is so much that we realize we can do together to help keep the world the way it is, which is to say fairly stable, fairly prosperous, uh, economies growing, uh, opportunities for free people to attain their full potential. There are countries and ideologies that would seek to arrest human progress and even turn back the clock. Mm. And I think the U.S. and India, each in their own way, and working with like-minded friends like Japan and Australia and others, are trying to, in a way, uphold stability and uphold prosperity and uphold a, a software for human interaction that is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. Because there are relentless onslaughts against it. 
right? So that's what we're talking about when we talk about this global strategic partnership. And it extends to many different things. Like, look at the joint statement between the prime minister and the president in, uh, was it June of last year? Arguably the best and most ambitious joint statement ever between the U.S. and India. There was something like eight or nine U.S. IBC companies mentioned uh, in semiconductors, uh, in uh, defense, and in um, uh, supply chain issues, including critical minerals. Th- that reflects the economic dimension of our partnership, but there's so much beyond it. You know, we could, for instance, work together to ensure safe and reliable supply of pharmaceuticals for our people. Which we saw during COVID, uh, the with the partnership, vaccines. and you were you were instrumental in in the cooperation that India and US did at that time. I wouldn't say instrumental. I played my small role, uh, but the the point simply is. There's almost no limit to what we can do together. Outer space cooperation, maritime defense and awareness, uh, you know, environmental uh, and sustainability agenda, you know, the prime minister's solar power alliance. It's amazing. You know, the idea of 10 million solar uh, houses uh, powered by solar panels in India. There's so much positive vision coming out of India right now. It's really actually catching the attention of the entire world. But when it comes to U.S. and uh, India, uh, whenever there is an upward trajectory, I mean, if you look at 20 years, um, if you look at the history, whenever there's an upward trajectory, there's some hiccup or the other. From the U.S. side, the I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the suspicion is towards our red tapism or trade barriers. From the Indian side, it's the inability to understand why America is not sensitive enough to understand that there are people in America who they harbor, who encourage secession in India. So um, where... Where, where do you think it can happen that, you know, this, this, there is a, more trust between the two countries? So those are two very different issues. But let me get back to trust. I think the pandemic, I know the pandemic was a very cruel master and taught some very cruel lessons to countries all around the world, including to the United States and India. But one very important lesson the pandemic taught us is that we can trust one another that we are uh, part of a shared high-trust ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That, uh, for instance, on vaccines and on all of the pharmaceuticals that were needed to get through the pandemic, American people will never forget that in our moment of need, when we asked for a global appeal for certain drugs, certain kinds of protective equipment, India stepped up. You know, India didn't say, no, we're not exporting that stuff to you. We're keeping it for ourselves. Other countries said that. India stepped up and helped us. And when you had your terrible moment in the pandemic, I think we as a country tried our best to step up as well. It reinforced the the feeling of trust, inherent trust between the U.S. and India. And that trust I'm now seeing in so many areas, not just in the Quad and in the Middle East, in Africa, in the Indian Ocean, but in technology. Uh, semiconductors, reliable and secure supply chains, critical minerals, pharmaceutical precursors, um, things like cybersecurity, uh, defense of the, of the global commons, maritime dom- d- domain awareness, defense capabilities. There's so many ways that the trust between our countries is getting deeper and deeper. Now, uh, yours is a vast country. It is arguably the most complex and layered country on earth. I think ours is also pretty big, but it's not nearly as as complex and varied as India. 
in any two countries as big as ours, uh, across the vast agenda of our work, and look at that joint statement, 58 paragraphs about all of the work that we do together uh, in very high trust areas, there's going to be at some point some issue of disagreement. Mm -hmm. That happens between friends. It happens between married partners. It's, it happens between parents and children. That's fine. It can happen. The key is how do we manage it, right? Mm -hmm. Do we manage it with mutual regard, with mutual trust, mutual confidence, with mutual respect? Then we can fix it, right? And I think the U.S. and India, after very turbulent times in the past, have now come to mm -hmm. a new echelon mm -hmm. of trust and confidence in one another. And so I think we can handle all of these problems. Uh, so in uh, in an interview, you mentioned, and I quote, India is trusted and stable, but could more expensive than China, Vietnam for businesses. Do you still hold that view, especially now, uh, you know, when there's talk about uh, several companies opening up businesses in India? Uh, do you still hold the view that it's more expensive to manufacture in India as compared to China? So first, let me start with praise. I think this country has done an enormous amount of work for ease of doing business and speed of doing business. If you look at the work of this government to attract investment, to go to companies, to say, hey, make in India, invest in India, we will address your needs to help you do world-class work from India. In a way, it's the India of my dreams. I remember the India of 1970s, 1980s, the import substitution era, the era of desperate poverty and lack of choice, um, a feeling almost of economic uh, claustrophobia or asphyxiation uh, that caused people like my father to leave the country. Yeah, shipped to Mount you know? yeah. That era is definitively at an end. The India of today is so confident. It is so sure of its capabilities. It is so certain of the advantages it has on the global stage right now. You know, India's economy is the is the great is the strongest economy on earth in some ways mm -hmm. the fundamentals are amazing now india has made giant progress in recent years very recent years in uh infrastructure in um you know talking the language of business to attract investment more and more investors are coming here usibc is working to try to ensure that they can get the smoothest easiest entry possible mm -hmm. so that they can prosper in yeah. india mm -hmm. India, it has competition in uh, in Mexico, hmm. in Vietnam, in China, in you know places like Ohio and Virginia and California, and so I think what I would say is, to the extent that India can streamline processes, it can facilitate investment, it can have consistent regulatory structures, then I think you will see the world beat a path to your door. India has. Made tremendous strides in how business friendly it is. It still has a little ways to go to be hyper competitive with all these other hyper competitive places. Uh, you spoke about the Indo Pacific region, you know, the Quad and Indo Pacific. If we were to talk about that conundrum with China there, how is it shaping US India strategic ties? Because uh, China sees, you know, there's this whole conversation about multipolar, bipolar world, and China wants it unipolar, especially with regard to Asia. Um, so tell me, what is your view? Where do you see this going, the India-Pacific region? So um, India, for over 100 years, 
has been uh, a nation that has upheld global peace and stability. Uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million or more Indians fought and died to preserve global order in the First and Second World Wars. Uh, we have to honor that commitment and that sacrifice. India has always been a country that bolsters global peace and security. Uh, ask um, countries around India and countries far away from India what it does to help them. Think about the Indian development aid to uh, Afghanistan over the years, or to Sri Lanka, where I served, or to Maldives, or to countries in Africa. When I was working on the, in, in, during the pandemic, uh, Paraguay needed vaccines very urgently. And despite it being very far from India, India stepped up and helped out. Yeah. So India is a country that other countries view as being a responsible stakeholder and a country that will be helpful if it can be, right? Mm -hmm. If every other country were like India, we wouldn't have the shared apprehensions that we have, mm -hmm. frankly. But if you look at Philippines or Japan or Vietnam, and I've worked on all of those countries extensively, uh, they share the apprehensions that we do. And we're not belligerent. We don't seek a fight. We just want countries to be sovereign and to have free and independent choice and to be able to take care of their societies and their people in the best way possible without anyone else bullying them or putting suasion on them to do things, right? A free and open Indo-Pacific is the mantra, right? Mm -hmm. If the Indo-Pacific is free and open, that means every country can thrive and develop each to its own capability, working in, as partners with other countries as well. Um, I think India shares that view. It's why we have been so successful as Quad partners. Um, certainly when you look at the history of the Quad, there's almost a, a, a perfect um, synchronicity in how we view the strategic and economic challenges of the Indo-Pacific. And that certainly, to an extent, is because of the activities of the PRC vis-a-vis -vis its neighbors, including India. Mm -hmm. You know, we only have to look at the news stories to see how countries around the PRC are facing serious challenges. And so building up the sovereignty and prosperity of countries is very important. Do you see these countries of Asia... Um expanding their ties with countries uh, with countries of Asia, excluding China? Like, are they reaching out more to, say, Japan? Are they reaching out more to India because of the belligerent attitude of China? They've never done that. They knew there was belligerence from China. They've had border issues with China. They've seen the expansionist policy of China, but they never did for quite some time. Do you see that happening now? So I was um, responsible for ASEAN, for Southeast Asia, um, in my last job. And um, I think those countries are hedging their bets. Mm. They have very good relations with China. They have very good relations with the United States. They have very good relations with Japan. They are now starting to have very good relations with India. And you're seeing how much India as well has been focusing on Indonesia and Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, and other countries. I think this is natural. Uh, it is a reflection of, frankly, rising tensions in the region. And these countries want to make sure that they have got all their options. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of a version of India's own foreign policy where having a lot of options makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, that's what uh, the Indian foreign minister said, that it should be appreciated that India has a number of options. But there's also uh, a very uh, pejorative uh, term which was used uh, recently at the Munich conference. I heard that uh, where uh, there was talk about uh, India being America's poodle in Asia. And it was, of course, refuted by a spokesperson from India uh, who said that, no, that's not the case Uh do you see that in conversations when you hear uh, business leaders coming and saying that this is what is talked about? Absolutely not. Hmm. Um, I think there's a very great degree of appreciation in Washington and among business people that the rise of India in world affairs is an inherently good thing. Hmm. Uh, and it's good for India. It's good for Indians. But it's probably good for a lot of people around the world. People who believe in freedom people who believe in free enterprise, people who believe in stability and a rules-based order. We don't know what that India of 2047 is going to look like. It could be a 20 or $30 trillion economy. We don't know how that India of 2047 will present itself to the world. Mm. But I think for the vast majority of people on this planet, it is not an active worry or concern about what that India will be. India's values are clear. They've been clear for, for millennia. Uh, they are increasingly clear. And, and so I don't think anyone would ever say, oh, India should be someone's poodle. No way. India is going to be a giant. It already is a giant. It is going to be an even bigger giant, maybe the biggest giant in the world by the mid-century. And India's values will help shape the future prosperity and happiness of the world. I don't think it's for any other country to tell India how to do that. It's for the Indian people to tell themselves. Will it be good for America? Absolutely. It'll be tremendously good for America to see another giant, capable, prosperous, happy democracy on the other side of the world. Okay. You know, we need more such allies and friends who can stand up for themselves and for their values and help give courage to all kinds of other countries. When we're talking about democracies, I'm going to come in. You, Your country goes to elections this year. So does ours. Um, just read uh, yesterday, last night, I think, um, India time last night and your time morning, uh, about uh, what happened with Donald Trump and uh, him saying that half a billion dollars fine um, against him. Now, that is election interference. Now, uh, where do you see this going? Uh, you know, uh, one side talking about election interference. People who, you know, around the world who look upon America as this beacon of democracy. And if the democratic process is not free and fair in America, what do you expect from other places in the country, in the world? So um, I will not comment on politics, uh, given that I've spent my whole career as a nonpartisan um, um, career officer, but now I'm, of course, retired. Uh, I'll let that tradition continue, especially when I'm not uh, at home and I'm overseas. This but, is so, What you're saying is so typical even of Indians. When they're outside, they will not comment on domestic <laughs> politics. That, And my job as a journalist is to try and pry that out of you. Well, it's a tradition, right? Yeah. When you're overseas, you know, don't talk politics about your home country. Hmm. But I will say this. We have had, you know, now you're testing me on math after I just <laughs> got off a 20-hour flight. But we have had peaceful, orderly transitions of power through democratic exercise since 
1792, 1793, mm. if I've got it right. And I have seen, you know, um, some pretty chaotic times in our country, but I'm certain that that tradition will continue. And I am certain that of another thing, which is that no matter what our political or rather electoral outcome is, or no matter what yours is, because the U.S. India project has such enormous bipartisan support in mm. both countries, I'm certain U.S.-India relations will continue to grow from strength to strength. I would agree, looking at uh, the history, and I mean, you've been in the State Department, I would think that. But there's also these uh, opinion pieces that come out in your media as well as our media, that if if Donald Trump comes back, anybody who has shaken a hand with him, uh, with uh, President Biden, will be taxed, will be will have to pay a fine, will be uh, ostracized by the new uh, dispensation. Uh, one keeps reading this in the media, whether it is in our country or your country. So uh, there's all kinds of media, and down to the core of my being, I will fight and die for its right to express itself in any way. Uh, that is a fundamental human freedom, and I think Indians and Americans agree with that. Uh, having been a victim of like completely scurrilous nonsense in the media that had no basis in fact, and in fact, uh, no one even bothered to check with me before putting that very slanted stuff out there, my view is people will say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You know, they're entitled to their opinions. Uh, ours is a, a country ruled by, uh, by rule of law and governed by rule of law, and it has separation of powers, and it has an American electorate that I think takes its duties very carefully and seriously when it goes to vote. So let's see how things pan because, out. Because, you know, uh, it's more than just the media. I mean, there's several business houses which you deal with. So when this kind of stuff comes out in your media and our media, business uh, leaders also wonder whether there will be sanctions, whether visas will be an issue when there is a change of dispensation, whether in our country or your country, if it happens. Um these are signals that one picks up. Uh, do you see that happening? Do you see a crackdown on visas? Do you see a crackdown on business relationship if there is a change of dispensation in your country? So, Everybody wants to bet on continuity, you know sure. what I mean? Um, there's been a long tradition of um, sort of continuity and centrism in American foreign policy for a long time. But what really governs American foreign policy under any president I've ever served is the advancement of America's strategic and economic interests and America's values. That's not going to change. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Americans look out at India, they see a country that is growing. They see a country that is democratic, that is peaceful, that is not a threat to the United States, that is a friend and partner in many ways, uh, a country whose proud citizens have helped transform the world through technological innovation, uh, whose uh, children are living in America and prospering very well. And so I, I don't see these very dark uh, possibilities. What I see is an America that looks out at the world, sees India and says, wow, in, in a world full of trouble, that is one country that's doing really well. Okay. Now, will we want some form of balanced and equitable treatment, of course. Do we want reciprocity? Of course. I mean, uh, that is the basis of diplomacy and it's the basis of relationships. So there may be some, you know, as I said, in, in, in countries like ours, there can be room for disagreement. We can mm -hmm. be friendly and disagree and work on things. Uh, you know, there's a constant list of things that both governments are working through in order to ensure a friendly and 
reciprocity-based relationship, there could be a little bit of that, but that's part of the give and take. I will say that every administration I've served, every president I've served has worked to advance the cause of U.S.-India relations. Mm. Of that, I am certain it will continue. So let's go back to the 2013-2015 period when you served in the State Department. How did that nuclear, what was the back uh, backroom work that went into the nuclear deal uh, oh. fructifying? So the nuclear deal was uh, uh, July 18, 2005 until October of 2008. So it was a little bit before 2013. Before, yeah. yeah. And then that period you were there in the in State Department. I was in, in Delhi, De- yeah. yeah. And the, well, look, I mean... There was the George Bush visit uh, yes, with Condoleezza Rice. Yep, 2006. Yes, yep. And I so, was one of the control officers for that. Yeah, so uh, I remember that time when that was such a crucial period yep. when he he put a lot of personal capital, uh, George Bush, into that uh, into the nuclear deal, and he and that continued with President Obama. You served under both presidents, so tell us a little bit about that period. Well, it was a fantastic time to be serving. Um, so I um, had been a I had been focused on the Middle East for ten years when I called up a friend of mine and said, "Hey, can I shift tracks and do something new and learn something new? Will you take me uh, in your team in India?" And he wrote me back and said, "You're hired." Hmm. And I said, "Well, my wife just joined the Foreign Service. Will you take her too?" And he said, "She's hired." So all of a sudden, my whole career, which had been so f- focused on Middle East, North Africa, just shifted in the blink of an eye. My wife and I landed here on July 1, 2005 with our kids. 17 days later, we were in a whole new ballgame. And it was because George W. Bush said, we are not going to take 10 years to get to normalization. We are not going to take forever to have our bureaucrats work through all of the rivers of bad blood and bad feeling between our two bureaucracies. We are just going to cut the Gordian knot. And George W. Bush was... uh, a man of his word. And he said it, it needed to happen. I have never felt so empowered as an officer in my entire career as when George W. Bush and Dr. Rice were basically giving us the push we needed. I was working for Ambassador Mulford at the time, great ambassador, wonderful ambassador. And friend of India. Friend of it, 100% friend yeah. of India. D- David Mulford is a great friend of India. Um, and um, I have never felt so empowered as a diplomat as during that era, because... They were betting on India when nobody was betting on India. Would you like to hear a story? Yeah, please. All right. So I have heard this from two principals who are in the room. Generally speaking, you triangulate with three sources in order to feel that you've really, you're on firm ground. Uh, I have at least two direct sources that I consider completely credible. Back when George W. Bush was candidate Bush, uh, there was a foreign policy seminar that was organized for him at Crawford at the ranch. And all of these Republican graybeards were brought together by Dr. Rice to educate candidate Bush, who was at the time governor of Texas. And so they sat there and talked for hours and hours and hours and hours. And at the end of it, I am told by two different people who were in the room, Bush asked them, he said, I've heard you all on Russia, Mexico, Latin America, Africa, Middle East, Japan, uh, China, Europe, but not one of you mentioned India. I'm curious, why did you not mention India? 
And they all sort of hemmed and hawed and said, oh, you know, India's kind of tough. You know, we have really tough relations with them. And, you know, there's just no, no hope there. And, you know, there are other more important things to worry about. And Bush said, well, hear me out. I'm governor of Texas. Everywhere I go in this state, there is a hospital uh, or a little clinic. And there's usually an Indian doctor or an Indian nurse, even in the smallest village. And these people are pillars of the community. They are indispensable members of the community. They pay their taxes. They're raising their children. They stay out of trouble. They are model immigrants. And I want to know why a country that generates these kinds of people that are pillars of the community throughout Texas doesn't get any coverage from you guys. Now, the telling of the story uh, is to illustrate a point. The nuclear deal stemmed from George W. Bush himself. Based on his understanding of the world, his understanding of uh, where there was um, opportunity for the United States, especially after 9-11, and his view that something magical was happening in India at a time way before other people could discern that. I worked for Bush in the uh, White House, and I worked for really <laughs> indirectly for him uh, in that tour in the embassy. And um, in many ways, he is the author, along with Dr. Manmohan Singh, of the nuclear deal. That was in 2005 when Dr. Manmohan Singh came, I think, to D.C. D.C., yeah. It was July, yeah. Of, July of 2005. 2005. Yep. I covered that visit. Yep. Yes, I remember that very. And it was like hit or miss. It it almost didn't happen in that visit, but it did then. And then there was the visit of George Bush to... Uh, uh, tell me, you've, you've covered so many presidential visits. What is the dynamics that happen? Uh, because, you know, for, for our viewers and listeners, uh, there's a lot that goes in before a presidential visit, a U.S. presidential visit. Yeah. So tell me, uh, tell me how it works. Gosh. I mean, this is like the old joke, never... Never witness a law or a sausage being made. It's a <laughs> ghastly process. Yeah. Uh, look at the heart of it. It involves two governments structuring a visit hmm. toward mutual, uh, mutual outcomes, shared outcomes, right? Like a visit is the highest level of protocol that a, one government can accord another. Uh, just like when Prime Minister Modi came for the state visit, which was magnificent. So uh, there's a lot of lead time planning, mm -hmm. you know, and... There's obviously sort of core bilateral issues that need to be worked. There may be some strategic opportunity that both sides want to pursue. Maybe there's, maybe there's some economic deals, yeah. trade deals, business deals. And then there's, uh, I would say, the emotional element. The optics of the The optics, world. right? Yeah. And a lot of diplomacy is stage work, you know, mm -hmm. and you've got to, like, get the frame right. So um, I was in charge of uh, – actually, I worked with the same person twice – uh, a real wonderful person who was a former boss. And um, uh, on one of the visits, uh, you know, one of the key things I was asked to do was to figure out the optics, right? So uh, we had uh, President Bush's speech at Piranakila, mm -hmm. if you remember that. And President Bush also went to Hyderabad and mm -hmm. announced that we would open a consulate. There was also the visit to the Indian School of Business, which mm -hmm. represented a new way of doing higher education in India. Um, uh, that visit was, I think, a good and positive visit. Um, that same boss who, with whom I worked on that visit sent me to India to sort of scout out the emotional stuff for President Obama. Mm. And um, that's how we, um, you know, uh, came to, uh, what is the place called? Is it Mani Bhavan in Mumbai? 
Ah, okay. Mani uh, Bhavan, Gandhi's, where uh, Gandhiji yeah, would stay yeah, yeah. in Mumbai, and where yeah. Dr. King yeah, yeah. also stayed Mas- in Mumbai. Yes. And President Obama went to the um, Taj Mahal Hotel yeah. uh, to pay tribute. And, you know, the, like the, the core work is in the joint statement, right? Yeah. And it re- re- involves endless hours of negotiation on every comma and dotted I and everything. And, and it reflects the actual kind of work contract between the two governments. We have agreed to do these things and we will work on them, right? It's not a contract per se, but it's like a public commitment. And then there's, of course, the structure of the meetings and the discussions. And then there's that emotional element, which mm. is between democracies, very important. Yeah. And I think your prime minister does a magnificent job of working on that emotional element. You know, I listen to his speeches when he goes around the world. He's a student of history, which I respect. He has a very great sense of the sacrifices of Indian people around the world uh, and the contributions of Indian people around the world. And so I think, you know, your government focuses on that emotional element of stagecraft really well. And it's important to do those things, right? Mm. All the other stuff, you know, as we always joked in the State Department, the minute the joint statement is negotiated and put out, it sinks like a stone. Yeah. <laughs> nobody nobody wants to read paragraph 82 about, you know. But by the time you came as charge d'affaires, there was a change of dispensation in, in New Delhi. But there's a continuity which you were talking about. The change of dispensation. I mean, uh, what, four presidents have changed uh, since... Uh, the nuclear deal uh, began, yeah. Yep. There was George Bush, yep. there was Obama, Obama there was Trump, Trump and Biden. Biden. Yep. And there's been a continuity in that, uh, in in the nuclear deal and post-nuclear deal, the upward trajectory. There were a couple of bumps. This one uh, uh, quote, I don't remember exactly who said that, but he said that the Indian uh, India-U.S. relations no longer flat like a chapati. It's puffed <laughs> up like a puri. It is. Right? So uh, how, how do you see that? Do you see that like that? I mean, do you see that uh, there's more Beyonce in, you know, like there's, there's it, it's that mutual trust that we were talking about that's gone and there's more, um, the, the mutual distrust is gone and there's more uh, hope and trust in the relationship. Do you see that? My yardstick for U.S.-India relations goes back to probably 1980 when I first remember having conversations with my cousins here and they reflected the distrust of that era, right? Mm. And now I I live in an era where there are American companies and Indian companies that are cross-investing in each other's economies Mm. to do the most advanced technological work in the world, right? Mm. We have cutting-edge innovation being done by U.S. and American companies, U.S. and Indian companies that really reflect not only that these companies are working in each other's countries, but they are blended in their personnel as well. Go look at one of the offices in Hyderabad or Bangalore of one of our American companies full of Indians. Go see TCS in, uh, you know, or one of the Indian companies, HCL or Infosys in America, Wipro, full of Americans and Indians working together. It is a blended approach that reflects high degrees of trust. Uh, I'll give you another funny example. I was ambassador in Sri Lanka. The uh, Indian Navy chief got up on stage and talked at a symposium 
Then the American uh, Indo-PACOM chief got up on stage and talked at a symposium. And when they both came and sat back down, I said, fellas, you could have swapped your speeches. You said the exact same things about your values, what your Navy stands for, what it does for the world, the, the service it does for humanity, the rules and values that it telegraphs. I said, and, and there's a thousand more examples, right? Uh, I just flew in today on a nonstop flight from the United States. As a kid, I dreaded transiting Frankfurt, Paris, Amsterdam, London to get to India. Now you just go nonstop, right? It's and it's still very few flights and they're always full. Fair enough. Yeah. But you can do it now. Yeah. Look at the internet. You know, I remember when my dad had to book a telephone call. It was like $3 a minute to call yeah. the United States. It was insanely difficult. And now you just FaceTime or WhatsApp with anybody. The, the degree of intimacy between our two countries is remarkable compared to the 70s and 80s and 90s. What are the problem areas in, for, like, when, when companies come to the USIBC and say, what are the problem areas? I know that visas are a big issue for Indian companies. What are the main problem areas uh, for American companies doing business in India and vice versa? Well, first, I think there's been a sweeping change in the government of India's attitude toward American businesses. I think there's a, a degree of respect for the fact that many of them have been here for over 100 years. Uh, you know, my ancestor came here as an expat American businessman. Mm -hmm. He was one of the very first executives posted overseas. IBM? Uh, no. GE, GE, General Electric. Okay. Uh, helped build the first hydroelectric dam in Asia at Shivana Samudram okay. on the Kaveri River oh, in okay. uh, near Mysore. Mm -hmm. So American companies have been here forever. GE, 1901, Abbott, 1920, Coca-Cola. You know, they've been here for a long time, Procter & Gamble. And um, they have been part of India's success, right? They have enhanced consumer choice for Indians, helped improve lives in India. Uh, look at our e-commerce companies that can deliver things to the doorstep at a price and with selections that are unrivaled. So I think there's been a, a, an understanding in the Indian government that these companies create wealth, they create jobs, they create opportunity, they are helping India as a whole become more uh, efficient as a place to do business. You know, if you look at the logistics transformation of this country, uh, uh, the Indian government has put in a lot of effort, but companies have also done that, U.S. companies in particular. So I think there has been this sweeping transformation and there's been an enabling atmosphere. When I go visit ministers, there isn't a single minister who ever says, I don't want to hear from you. They always want to hear from us. They say, look, if what you say is beneficial for my people, my citizens, and advances the cause of making India developed and prosperous and happy, I might listen to you. Hmm. And I might even think about it. But the, they're, they're willing to take input and then make their own sovereign decisions, right? So I think what we try to do is ensure that our feedback both to the U.S. and the Indian governments is constructive, it's respectful, and it is very focused on win-win. Win-win. Hmm. Win for India, win for America, win for the people of India, win for Indian GDP, win for Indian prosperity. Because if it's not good for India, why should we ever propose it, right? I think the, the number one ask of any company, Indian or American, and we have both Indian and American companies, is regulatory predictability, mm -hmm. right? If I'm going to make a 
$20 billion investment, right? I'm going to go to my investment committee. They're going to go to the shareholders. We're going to take 10, 20 billion of capital and put it into a factory that has to last 50 years in a certain place under a certain tax uh, scheme with certain logistics, uh, with certain inputs related to, I don't know, the way they do their business. They need to have predictability to put that much capital in, right? And this is where um, China has excelled. Uh, I think American states are very strong on regulatory predictability. Mexico's really good at it. Vietnam's really good at it. The more India can have that stable regulatory framework, the more you're going to have uh, companies beat a path to your door. Hmm. Ease of doing business, swift arbitration of disputes, um, you know, predictable regulatory climate. These are the critical components. Capital, uh, investment capital wants to be somewhere where it can be safe. You know, right. it's like a frightened rabbit in some ways. If you make the rabbit happy, it stays. Interesting. On that note, thank you very much. Thank you for coming to the podcast and wishing you the very best. Uh, hope you get to travel a little more in uh, India this time. Last time, I think you were here just for a week, if I'm not mistaken, in January. I actually came back last week to go to Goa for two days. <laughs> okay. And I was in Goa for the first time in 40 years. Wow. It was wonderful. Yeah. Perfect weather yep. for Goa. And I got to Bhubaneswar last year, first time ever in Bhubaneswar. Okay. I got to Ahmedabad for the first time. I went to Mundra and I saw all of the historical sites in Ahmedabad and the new bridge. First time ever in Gujarat. So in this new job, I'm traveling more than I did in my previous job. That's because of COVID you couldn't when you were in Shastri Fair's year. But yeah, I, it, it, I guess even when you were in Sri Lanka and Maldives, uh, the envoy there, uh, I don't think you traveled all that much towards India, right? Made it to Hyderabad for a conference, for made a conference. it to Delhi for consultations. Uh -huh. uh, I think I made it to Delhi for a wedding at one point as mm -hmm. well. Um, I, t I brought my kids here for tourism. My youngest daughter was born in India. Oh, okay. And she said, Dad, you have to show me India. So I've shown her Delhi, but I have to show her the whole country. Lovely. Yeah. Wishing you the very best. Thank you so much. What a delight. Thank, Thank you. you very Thank much. You. Thank you for watching or liking this episode. Do write in to us with your suggestions. Namaste. Jai Hind.